As we open ourselves to immerse deeply in our Advent series, 300 years of joy to the world, it seems more than fitting that I share my joy in being back with you this Sunday. And my joy, our joy, of the gift of both Pam and Kenny who have designed and led worship these past two Sundays. I was lucky enough to be here and weaved into Pam's service two weeks ago, which as I texted Pam after the service, was one of the best worships we've had at Bluegrass United Church of Christ. And last week I was already in Florida while Kenny and his husband Mason also led a very special and extraordinary service honoring our Native American kindred spirits. And there was wonderful feedback from this, including a thank you card I got when we got in here this morning. And I told Pam and Kenny, we're going to have have Mason preach because a visitor sent us a thank you card and said, I loved the guest speaker. (laughs) Indeed, it's been a joyful time at Bluegrass. And it's our hope, friends, that in the next month, we'll continue giving focus to joy. God knows, literally that our world, that our nation, our community, indeed our very lives, need more joy. It seems then the obvious question is, how do we find joy? How do we connect with joy? Life is challenging. And for each of us, challenges come in various forms. For some who are differently abled physically or mentally or emotionally, Life presents challenges in getting around relative to accessibility, in blending in by giving out what is perceived to be normal behavior or emotions. It's always really interesting to me, especially when I travel, the number of kids I see who are obviously on the spectrum of autism and the challenge that brings to them in crowds and to their parents. Life can be challenging. For others, our challenges come from our very lives, plans that fell through, relationships that fell apart, dreams that didn't come true. Life is disappointing. People we once counted on disappoint us. Promotions that we knew we should get because of our experience or performance were given to someone with an in-connection. Elected leaders that we did not support make decisions and policies that affect us. And even worse, affect the least among us. And we feel a myriad of emotions from angry to hurt to very disappointed and frustrated. Life is empty. We've lost loved ones through death that we either didn't see coming or even while anticipated left us feeling empty. And longing. We've lost relationships that we thought would last a lifetime. Friends. Significant others. Family. Even church. Only to experience fragmentation. From differing opinions or life-taking behavior that we can no longer reconcile. And so in our grief or our loss of relationship, we can just feel empty. Now at this point, you may be saying to yourself what you really want to say to me. Thanks, Pastor Marsha. We appreciate you for launching this series about joy. (laughs) Reminded us of all that is wrong with our world and our lives. 
challenges, disappointments, emptiness, divisiveness. Joy to the world. Well, friends, here's the deal. All of this is the reality of life. And although most of us know cognitively that we are not alone in going through these things, sometimes doesn't it feel like we're the only ones who really knows how tough life can be? I think that's the case right now with our political climate. Now make no mistake, our country is very divided, and yet although we feel like it has never been this divided, we are kidding ourselves. I can only speak to my lifetime, yet I'll go back just a few decades. As tough as life can be now in these United States, think to the Civil War in the 1860s which pitted family members against one another, and not just at the annual Thanksgiving table. It pitted them against one another literally in war. President Lincoln was killed as a result of his stances for civil rights and the end of the horrific, horrific condition of slavery. As tough as life can be now, think of the Great Depression, which began with the Wall Street crash of 1929, and extended for a very difficult four years. And some of our members here remember living through the Depression. This time was followed by World War II, as we found it necessary not only for our nation's protection, but also for human rights to become involved and defeat the murdering of innocent Jews by Hitler. About ten years after that became the Civil Rights Movement, where our African-American brothers and sisters were treated as property and inhumanely in every sense of the word. Once again, white families were split because the truth is, especially in the South, it was the exception, not the rule, for white folk to intercede on behalf of black folk. That fight lasted for at least 30 years, from the late 1940s into the 1970s. And in the midst of that, President Kennedy and his brother were both killed, And even with all of that, we all know that racism is still alive and well. The Civil Rights Movement was followed by Vietnam, which along with the Iraq War, following the events of 9-11, were wars not supported by millions of people in our country. Again, leaving us very divided. And speaking of 2001, those events led to a major recession which crashed Wall Street again, along with the housing market, record uninsured Americans, and high unemployment. Our first African-American president stepped into that mess, and while indeed some disagreed with President Obama's policies, if we're honest, there were and are millions of people who disagreed with his skin color. And for those of us who might have celebrated President Obama, we became divided by others who could not find one thing for which to praise him for, sounds strikingly familiar to where we are now with President Trump. Our country is very divided. And yet if we're objective and we look briefly to the history I've just laid out, our country has always been divided. However, in other divisive times, we didn't have polarized and biased moods on both sides of the aisle. We didn't have Facebook and Instagram and Twitter where fellow citizens or leaders expressed every thought they had. Take us back to the time of Lincoln 
who had a habit that I still try my best to follow because, friends, it is in my DNA to be a fighter and to be defensive. And I work really hard at that, and I have a wife who keeps me in check. But President Lincoln would write a letter that was perhaps not going to be received really well by the, by the person he was writing it to. And so he would put it in his drawer, he would sleep on it, he would bring it out the next day, and either decide, I'm sending it on, I'm going to edit it a little bit, or I'm going to throw it in the trash. This is all to say, friends, that when, when it boils down to things, here's what life really is. Life is relative. I've always shared with my friends and family that if someone said, Marsh, you have one word to describe life, what would it be? And my answer is relative. Life's relative to our history, our family, our church, the society we're raised in, our friends, our school. Life is relative to our experience, privileged by sex, race, culture, education, family makeup, or unprivileged by the same things. Life's relative, friends, to our situations. Perhaps some things that challenge us in our younger years can be successfully managed now because we have some wisdom. And yet there are other things that are more difficult than they were when we were younger. And mainly life is relative to our perspective, which finally brings us to joy. I've outlined some history of our country I've mentioned some things that life is, challenging, disappointing, empty. And as much as these things matter and as much as they affect us, when we profess to be people of faith, we can still be cemented in joy and in hope and in the promises of our Creator. Because, among other things, the song sings, Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And we have joy because God has come among us and lived among us and still does. In our scripture reading from Isaiah, it's the words of this ancient prophet that beckon us to what I refer to as joy of the heart, coming from hope of the soul. Isaiah allows us to eavesdrop on his dreams for the future. And keep in mind, friends, that when Isaiah was dreaming, things in his life were very bad. From the birthplace of Jerusalem in the 8th century before Jesus was even born, Isaiah prophesied in a very turbulent time in Israel's history. The kingdom of Israel that was united under kings David and Solomon became divided under the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The northern kingdom of Israel comprised of ten tribes rebelled, while Judah and Benjamin became the southern kingdom of Judah. So all this to say that these are often called the lost tribes of Israel, for they were absorbed in the culture and they lost their identity. This was the time when Isaiah prophesied. And he reminded the people of the need to keep God's covenant if the Israelites We're going to remain God's chosen people. But His ministry fell on deaf ears. And so, the scripture that Pam just read began with, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In other words, this was a vision of Isaiah. 
This was a hope of Isaiah. And he believed that this dream would come true, that, that his hope was divinely inspired, and that someday nations would beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning tools. Come, Isaiah says. Come in the midst of total chaos and division and challenges and disappointments and emptiness. Come and walk by God's light. Walking in God's light, brothers and sisters, means that we have to be grounded in God's love and in God's hope, in God's peace and in God's joy. And how might this come about with all the struggles that life can be? Where's the joy? One possibility that's offered is found in our second scripture from Romans. Now scholars are pretty sure that Paul wrote this about 20 years after the death of Jesus. And he was writing to a church that he'd never visited. And a casual reading of this epistle doesn't convey that it was a situational writing like he did to the church at Corinth who were all hell had broken loose there and he was writing to them to rein them in. Here Paul writes with regards to the big picture, laying down the doctrine of soteriology, which is a sort of fancy term for salvation. See, friends, salvation was really important to the ancient community. It's a key reason they talked about it and wrote about it so much. For the truth is that life that our early Christians and believers were living makes our worst day look like a picnic. From every direction there was calamity and poverty and all matters, all matters of political, society, and even religious oppression. It was writing amidst this background that Paul gives them and us, if we'll listen, some directions are changing our perspective, hence finding our joy. So this is my translation, and when I say you or yourself, it includes me and myself. Don't get so absorbed in yourself that you miss out on building a relationship with God through silence, meditation, prayer, being part of a faith community. Become grounded in God's light and share God's light. See, by your living, people should know that your hope and your joy comes not from the world, but from God. Don't get exhausted in what you perceive to be a big deal. Do what I did this past week, and I have two witnesses here will say it. Turn off the television. Stop listening to all the political bantering. Read a book. Write a letter to a friend. Journal about your feelings. Plan a get-together with friends. Informal and casual. That doesn't require a lot of work. No pressure. Including church family who surround you with positive energy or authentic relationships. Step away from people and places and events and surroundings when those persons or situations result in you getting a little fired up. Instead, either get away from things like social media altogether or commit to using it only to connect with friends and family. As we've talked about before, and man, this hits me right between the eyes, very few, if any, people will change based on our words of disagreement. 
or our attempts to enlighten them. They might, however, change based on our living and our actions. Wake up! Wake up, Paul says to the Romans, and stop squandering your precious daylight hours. In other words, stop wasting your life away on trivial details and in the end won't matter. Get out of bed and get dressed. That was odd to see in Scripture, wasn't it? Paul says, now think of this, friends. He's telling oppressed folks that have things coming to them from all sides, not just to wake up, but get up. Get up. Make your life count. Ask God how God wants to use you. And then allow God to do that by opening your heart and your mind, your time and your talents to God's possibilities, not what you see as restrictions. Realize the preciousness of life. Even when you grieve of losing someone you love, you better bet that hurts. And yet, the joy that comes from knowing the life you shared. It was that degree of joy that sometimes brings degree of hurt. The joy from having someone in your life that you loved enough to hurt when they transitioned to eternity. Even when empty or disappointed or challenged, put the full realization of life's precious value to action. Making every minute count. And taking none of life for granted. Rather we're called to be in a spirit of gratefulness for all we have. And all we are. And for whose, whose we are. Instead of a restless spirit which focuses on the perspective of what you don't have. What gets you fired up. We're forgetting your unique belovedness in the eyes of God. This, my brothers and sisters, is our choice. No matter what comes our way, our perspective has a direct effect on our joy. Focus on negativity and challenges, division, disappointment, emptiness, grief, or any other fill-in-the-blanks will leave us self-absorbed and exhausted. And our perspective will be what's wrong with life and what's wrong with the world rather than the preciousness of life and what God needs us to do and what's right in the world. Changing our perspective in the midst of troubling times won't happen if we rely on the world or the news or the latest trends it will, however, have a snowball's chance in a really hot place if we know when we, when we commit our lives to not only finding the foundational joy of God in our lives, but sharing it with others. Life is relative to our perspective. And yet, no matter where we find ourselves this morning, life is precious. And that we still have life and the love of God 
and the love of this church should bring a spark of joy that is just waiting for a new birth in our hearts and in our lives. As with my brother Isaiah, this is my dream for you and for our world. That you discover joy. I pray for it every day. For every one of you. That in the midst of whatever's going on, you will find some joy. And if nothing else, know this. We love you. And we care about you. And we're going to stand with you. As with my brother Paul, this is my commitment. To wake up. To get up. And live as if my life matters because it does. And so does yours. So does yours. And so do theirs. May we live in that joyful discovery of what our life can be.